This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, dynamic voices for a diverse church powered by The Witness, a black Christian collective. I am your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at BurnsClan. Follow at your own risk. And joining me as always, he has a very, very, very long intro. Listen, so many accomplishments. He is the founder of The Witness. He is the two-time best-selling, New York Times best-selling author, the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Blue Check verified himself and you can't see it, but you can hear it. The author of the Young Readers edition of How to Fight Racism. I got it in my hands. I came ready, bro. I didn't even tell you. I came wow. prepped. Mr. Mr. Jamar, excuse me, Dr. Jamar Tisby. Look, I, I'm playing with these pages. So I the title. Come on, man. Bro, how what you doing, up, what man? Up? What up? Y'all don't remember that. <laughs> Martin, 1990s. Yes, yes, yes. I'm doing good, fam. This is obviously one of our favorite episodes of the entire year, an annual tradition that you started. And so I'm always thrilled to see the evolution of Tyler Burns, what he's going to bring this time again. <laughs> now, nah, man, this is a great episode. We always enjoy it. Listen, it is the holiday season, so we're both kind of in different places. So if you don't hear crystal clear, pristine audio quality for this one, Bo, please forgive us. Audience, please forgive us. We are on the move, okay? We're trying to do what you're doing right now, chilling in your recliner with some hot cocoa. That's what we're trying to do. <laughs> That's what everybody's doing, obviously. Yes. yes. Okay. But we want, we're still here for you. We're still here for the people. Okay, Be let's get clock. into it. Yes. Let's get into it. This is our Cultural Artifacts episode. And for those of you who have never heard a Cultural Artifacts episode, number one, where have you been? But it's all good. No problems. We are going to induct you into the Cultural no Artifacts shame. family. It is there's forgiveness. No, sh no, sh no shame, no shade. It's all good. There's, there's forgiveness. Go back and listen to the other ones. I think you will enjoy it. But these are what has kind of evolved into our 10 favorite things from the year. They can be books. Uh, TV shows, movies, events, uh, episodes, uh, people, literally anything. But the the twist with our cultural artifacts um, episode is that it doesn't just have to come out in 2021 or the given year. It just has to be something that you consumed in the given year. So it could have come out in 1920 or 1980 as long as you consumed it and were moved by it in that year, it is eligible to be a part of our cultural artifacts. So that's our little twist. Although I will say a lot of my stuff this year did come out in 2021 or did reach it, reach its peak in 2021, but okay. we're going to do okay. our first five. Okay. That's a little, little spoiler, little spoiler, but we're going to do our first five in part one and we are going to alternate. We have not seen each other's list. We have not talked about our list. The blind we just said, taste hey, test. It's, it's blind taste test. Okay. So we're going <laughs> to respond very authentically. Okay. So I, I started last year, I think. So this year, Jamar, you've got to start with your first cultural artifact item. 
Okay, so this year I finally you listen, y'all. Every cultural artifacts episode you listen to, you're gonna hear me lament that Tyler is always the most creative, the most innovative with his cultural artifacts. Nah, don't don't do that. Don't I, do that. Yes, nah, yes, I don't. I don't yes. believe it. You, we, he's trying we, to set every, every time he does year. this. He tries to set me up. Every time he does this, he set me up. So I'm not you falling for it. Well. So, but this year I put some thought into it. Now, as a precursor. Uh, pursuant to what Tyler just said about how we select these cultural artifacts, I'm comparing some of my stuff to the the Time Magazine Person of the Year approach. So, mm-hmm. so when Time chooses a Person of the Year, that doesn't always mean the most popular, the most likable, the most whatever. It just means this person was impactful. Sometimes they're not even a person. It's like a group of people, right? It just means they were impactful. They're well-known. They had um, some sort of trajectory alter, altering influence, but it may not be all that positive. For example, in 2021, their person of the year was a billionaire named Elon Musk. And right. uh, yeah, I got feelings <laughs> yeah, about that. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but the first one is not going to be at all controversial, nor will it be even surprising, but I have to name it. And Tyler, I believe we've done this one if not every year, definitely last year. And so I am going to go ahead and put it out there because we would be remiss not to mention as our first cultural artifact, in no particular order, Black women. Black okay, women, let's get it. Let's get it. Okay, so in particular, I'm thinking of Amanda Gorman. Do you remember at the top of the year? Of course, yes. The spoken word poet. the poet at the presidential inauguration and absolutely stole the show. But what I loved about it was that she was able to, through art, convey her conviction that the United States had gone egregiously wrong in some areas, and yet she still sounded a note of hope in the poem. She still sounded a note of faith that progress was possible. And I just thought it was so interesting, especially in that moment. Obviously, a lot of people are hopeful. Many of those hopes have been disappointed uh, in what we've seen in the first year of this administration. But in this sort of um, perfect microcosm of like United States patriotism, it's a moment where a lot of people could be cynical. I felt like her poem and even her presence there made it really, really hard to be cynical right then. It made you want to hope for better things for this nation. Whether or not it actually happened, it was just a testament to A, Amanda Gorman's skill, talent, you know, all of that, but also the power of art to help us see beyond Mm -hmm. sight, to help Mm -hmm. us imagine what's possible. So, She's one. I'll go quickly through the others. Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka. Of course, of course. Together, they took each of them a very powerful and controversial stand for their own mental health. So Simone Biles withdrew from the Tokyo Olympics, Naomi Osaka from the French Open. These are not little events in their sport. These are like pinnacle moments in their sport. And they chose their own mental health, their own well-being as black as, uh, uh, in case of Naomi Osaka, uh, Osaka, black and Asian women, right? 
And in so doing, they took a powerful step step in helping to normalize Mm -hmm. mental health, black mental health and one's own agency to say, I know what's expected of me. I know what everyone says I should do, but Mm -hmm. I'm going to take a stand for my own health. And of course, they stand in a long line of folks who could name Serena Williams and so many others who are doing similarly. And then lastly, on top of my mind, I mean, all black women, obviously, but uh, Latasha Brown of Black Voters Matter. Of course. Yes. Yes. My, my, my. I heard her in person in Jackson, Mississippi, her and Cliff Albright. And y'all, I mean, she preaches, she theologizes, she understands the political. She understands what I love about Latasha Brown is she is so connected to the black folk. Yes, like she is she, she's in on the ground circle you can think of, but her heart is for the people and it comes through in every single word she says in the approach that Black Lives Matter takes to mobilizing and organizing people and in her priorities in terms of politics and voting rights. So shout out is my first art uh, cultural artifact to black women. That's amazing, man. Definitely going to hear some uh, Black women names later on in my list, <laughs> which I'm excited to get into, but I won't reveal that yet. But yes, that is always appropriate as a shout out. And the names that you mentioned, of course, were very important names in 2021. Okay, my turn. Um, I am going to start. I'm a little movie heavy this year. I apologize for that, but I am actually going to start uh, with a film that most of us probably forgot even came out in 2021. I had to be reminded it came out in February and it is Judas and the Black Messiah. Ah, yes. Yes. Directed by Shaka King, starring Daniel Kaluuya as Fred Hampton, uh, Lakeith Stanfield as William O'Neill. Dominique Fishback is a revelation um, as Fred Hampton's love interest um, and partner Deborah. And this film, when I first heard about it and when I first heard about the presentation of the film and the angle it was taking, it raised an eyebrow. I'm not going to lie. I was a little skeptical about how this was going to go. And the reason is because it's set up in a way that centers William O'Neill. And he's offered a, a plea deal by the FBI to infiltrate the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party to gather intelligence on Chairman Fred Hampton. Fred Hampton, of course, being the revolutionary figure at that time, who was building a multiracial, multi-class coalition of people um, to stand against the government and stand against injustice. And I initially was very skeptical about it. This film is incredible. There's just no way around it. Everyone is on top of their game. Everyone is phenomenal. And I love a couple of things about the film that really actually, and I have to credit some of my friends for actually twisting this idea, turning this idea on its head, that I was a little upset that we weren't getting more of a Fred Hampton biopic, right? That we weren't going to get a central kind of origin story of Fred Hampton. And, you know, a couple of my friends, Ray and Brad Bradford, they were talking to me about this idea of, of how all biopics are kind of in the same formula. And that it's refreshing to get a black biopic that's not a biopic or that comes from a different angle that doesn't have to be stale, that is offbeat and also catches you off guard and and enhances and expands your imagination of the multi-layered reasons why and circumstances surrounding 
um, this particular tragedy. And it really changed my perspective of it. And after I watched it again, I really appreciated it. I appreciated its radicality. There's a very radical way that the politics are portrayed. I like that word, um, radicality. Yeah, it's just it's a <laughs> radicality in it. I appreciate it. Even the way in which the scenes were filmed, like the scene, I forget exactly where they were, but it's in the trailer when he's yelling out, I am a revolutionary and the crowd is responding and how they shot that scene felt like church. I think it might've even been in a church, but it felt like church um, just because of his, his embodied, how Daniel Kaluuya embodies Fred Hampton, how his partner Deborah is weeping because there's a an idea that this might be the last time that he's speaking like this, that every time he speaks like this might be the last time he speaks like this mm-hmm. um, because there was a target on his back. It just really surprised me. It caught me off guard. It is a brilliant, brilliant film. Um, and I have to give it up for Judas and the Black Messiah. Very well done. I'm going to have to, so I, I, I've said on the pod before, I, I don't jump toward those movies um, because they're so heavy, but not just that, but because I studied all that. So I've, I've read about right, right. Red Hampton and, and the detail, and it's so heartbreaking, y'all. This man was beyond dynamic and just intelligence and wisdom yes light years beyond not only his years but his era uh so so it's 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 incredibly crushing to to see such a light snuffed out so early but the way you describe it tyler i might have to watch it in little chunks in little it'll be chunks yeah it's difficult it's not an easy one to get through because you know what's what it's leading towards yeah you know not just because of the compound trauma and not just because of kind of the pain that you feel when you watch it because you know what it's leading towards. But one of our staff members here at The Witness, Bria, is brilliant in pointing out kind of what she calls the, the I want to get it right, the Netflixication of black the black radical tradition and how mm-hmm. our stories can become commodified and neat and tidy and lack complexity. And so I'm always aware of that. And actually a group of us kind of started this this chat and we actually watched the film and had kind of a breakdown chat afterwards because we wanted to pay attention to, is it possible for Hollywood to actually portray the black radical tradition and give it its just due? Is that even a possibility? Is it even, are we even we're critiquing it because it's not radical enough or it's not true enough, but is it possible if Hollywood touches it for it to ever be real or true? And it's a good question for us to ask critically as we enter into to media, especially as we talk about, you know, black activism and even, you know, black faith in the black church and our heroes and our idols and all this. But so yes, yeah, so I totally, I totally hear that. <laughs> I'm hearing at least a podcast episode with you and Bria and your the, the usual suspects on, if not an entire new podcast uh, uh, for pop culture. <laughs> he's trying to give us more work. He's trying to give us more work. He's trying to give us more work for the people. This for the people. But yes, yes, that's that's incredible. I love your insight on that. Um, I'm going to stick with the, the, uh, film kind of genre here. Let's do it. Let's do it. 
I was absolutely just taken by the documentary film, A Man Named Scott. A Man okay. Named Scott. That is about the artist known as Kid Cudi. Oh, um, wow. Okay. Yes. Wow, yes. Jamar coming swinging. Okay. <laughs> Jamar hit us with a jab and then a, well, he hit us with a left hook first because it was black women. And then he hit us with an uppercut. Okay, I see. Okay. Hmm. Man, so so I have been watching just a lot of documentaries. So I won't I won't really watch like dramatic films about you know the black freedom struggle or something, but I'll watch a documentary in a second. And not even just about history, but just about like important figures, whether entrepreneurs, explorers, or in this case, an artist. And Again, it's it's sort of along the lines. I don't want to call up the term and and use it incorrectly, but in, in it, it's just the the Netflix the Netflixification of documentaries. But by which I mean the standardization. Yes, of, of course. Style, yes, right? talking head. Very. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Very straightforward. I mean, it's effective at communicating information. It's almost like it's almost like a college lecture. Right. Like a lecture format mm-hmm. is good for disseminating a lot of information very quickly, but it's not very engaging. It's not very creative. It's just nuts and bolts, brass tacks, whatever. So I've been looking for some sort of a documentary style that was more engaging, more creative. And this one hit the nail on the head. A man named Scott uses all of these cool effects. So 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 the plot is basically what's the significance of Kid Cudi and his musical impact and how does that intersect with his personal journey dealing with drug addiction and depression. Yes. So yes. it's it's a very real raw kind of documentary. It's one that gives you permission to not be okay, particularly in terms of mental health. It it exposes you to what it's like to go from Kid Cudi started out with his song Day and Night, which was on Spotify a classic. for a minute until it blew up. And it was one of the first modern manifestations of an independent artist. He wasn't signed with a label or anything, making mainstream success on his own, basically, just, just putting his stuff out there. And to go from this almost completely anonymous artist to working with Jay-Z and Kanye West in in the blink of an eye and what that does to a person's psyche and what it does in particular to an artist who is so attuned with emotion so emotive in general right so it was a it was a very poignant story and journey but the way the director Robert Alexander put it together I just thought was so creative. So he would combine a static shot of a person like sitting down looking at the camera with them, the actual person sitting down looking at the camera in some other um, pose in the same room. So they'd be like walking Mm. behind themselves. Wow. Okay. There were moments when people were talking and he did, you know, dozens of interviews and where their sentences overlapped and they used like literally the exact same words, he would do a couple of different things. Either he would put them all together on the same frame, saying the same thing at the same time to show the pattern, or he would just um, highlight that word or that phrase in each of the interviews to to remind hmm. the viewer 
Like this is a theme. This is coming up again. He would do comic book kind That's of a shots with different frames at the same time, different panels and everything. And um, he just let people talk in, in a way that was really engaging. Uh, so it, it was just an innovative way of doing a well-known form, the documentary. Also, it was powerful because it moved you. It made me download all of Kid Cudi's stuff. Like I had been a casual fan up until this point. When I saw that documentary, I'm like, oh, I sh- oh shoot, I gotta get this on the phone ASAP. Been listening to that on repeat ever since I saw it. So, a man named Scott. It is um, not family friendly in terms of language or themes, but uh, definitely. Man, we know you. Know, people know this uh, dope <laughs> podcast. People know. <laughs> <laughs> not like that, but people know. People know. People already know. Um, yeah, th- that's really fascinating because number one, I have not seen it. Number two, Kid Cudi's influence on music is hard to overstate. Mm-hmm. He really influenced what we know as music today, um, especially hip hop today. And, you know, those who came after him, like Drake, even, even Kanye, Kanye is notorious for taking, when he takes people under their wing, he copies their style. <laughs> and it's, it's, I mean, it's just how he does it. You know, it's, yeah. it's. Uh, Cuddy, it's Travis Scott, it's a whole bunch of other people that we can get into, but you know that's what that's what Kanye does, and and Cuddy is extremely influential. So this makes it a must watch for me. So I got to check it out. That's dope. Okay, number two for me, I'm gonna actually flow into a book, and it is a book that actually came out in 2018, written by the late Dr. James Cone, entitled "Said I Wasn't Gonna Tell Nobody." It is James Cone's um, final true. work. Yes. It's his final work and it is a memoir. And he describes the obstacles that he overcame to find his voice, to respond to the signs of the times, and also to offer a voice for those who had no voice or whose voice was not being heard. And I know that a lot of people have differing thoughts and differing opinions about James Cone for whatever reason. There are some people who are more conservative who listen. And this is one of the phenomenons of Pastor Mike, right? We have both conservative and liberal slash progressive listeners. Mm -hmm. And you're from all different stripes and all different denominations. It really is kind of an ecumenical audience as we've done some informal polling. And so there's conservatives who would take umbrage with doctrine. There's progressives who would take umbrage with specificity and detail and maybe even emphasis, right? Even seeing how Cone had to be pushed to include the Black church more prominently in his research or pushed to include womanist perspectives more prominently in his research. But whatever it is that you approach Cone believing, I I think this book is, is essential reading for anyone who is a Black Christian attempting to push our movement forward. It was the story and the journey that made this book feel like such a gift. And it challenged so many of the things that I had previously assumed about Cone, even some of the things that I already just said. It challenged a lot of my preconceived notions about Cone. It challenged what I thought about his journey. He talks about his use of language, even down to how he interacted with some of his favorite scholars in some of the scholars that we would know in classic theology. One of my favorite threads in the book is this relationship that he has with C. Eric Lincoln and how C. Eric Lincoln, who is a noted religion, black religion scholar, 
and kind of the godfather of black religion, history and studies and things like that. He pushes Cone to write. He pushes Cone to write his second yeah. book after he wrote yeah. his first yeah. book. You know, how how he how he even details how Lincoln would just simply say, Hey, I believe you, you I believe in you, you can do it. You know, you can write it in nine months, you can write it in six months or or whatever it may be. And how that that mentorship really gave him the courage to believe in himself. And how so many times we can think of people who write as or people who are scholars or people who lead as having everything together, but knowing that there were mentors. I loved another thread in this book that where he talks about people like Gayrod Wilmore and others yep. who opposed his work and pushed him and not opposed it in necessarily a negative way. Although he does talk about, I believe it's Charles Long who who opposes in a very scathing way, but he talks about how much he learned from the people who critiqued him. And he says it didn't always feel good, but what it did feel like was sharpening it did feel like a level of growth. And he did understand, and he also understood, came to understand later on how the people who had sharp critiques of him also greatly admired him, that both can exist, right? It was just a, it's the book I've I probably thought about the most because it gave so much fuel in the tank for the work that we do here at The Witness. And Even the intentionality of how he used language that spoke to, he he talks about how he wrote and I'm going to move on, but he talks about how he wrote and he, he wrote to the rhythm of his body. Like he wrote to the Hmm. rhythm of, of what it was just like, ah, you know how you just, you know, you get in this mentality in this mode, even as writers where you feel like you have to write according to Eurocentric standards, or you feel like you have to write according to the standards of what people will purchase and what Mm. publishers are willing to promote. And he, he just wrote to the rhythm of his body and outlived him. You know, I mean, he's the godfather of black theology. Like he, he changed it. He changed what we think about even how we approach the oppressed and, and now even seeing in 2021, how essential his work is to even entering into the conversation. It was just so inspiring, man. There's so much more I could say, but this book is a book you must, must read. And he has such an economy of words. It's a short book. Yes, it is. Very short. It's so packed with meaning. And yes, I totally agree with you. I found so re- so much resonance with what we're trying to do on past the mic and at the witness. It was an empowering book as well as informative. Awesome selection. All What's right. What's number three? What's number three for you, bro? These number are some good. We got three. some heat, bro. We got some heat so far. We got some mad heat. Uh, this one is going to feel like it's coming out of left field. But as soon as I dig into it, you're going to be like, oh, yeah, that's right. So my third cultural artifact is the United States legal system. Hmm. <laughs> the United States legal. Hold on that. Unpack system. that. Unpack that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Like what? So I'm not saying I'm a fan of it. I think there needs to be dramatic uh, reform and transformation in the legal system. But it has throughout history and especially in 2021 determined so much of our political, legal, social and even cultural landscape. It has been a roller coaster following various court cases that all somehow ended up being decided in 2021 
And I think with each of these decisions, it's indicative of the state of the union, so to speak. It's indicative of policing, of race relations, of a lot of different things. So just a brief rundown of legal decisions that came down this year. Hmm. In February, former President Donald Trump was acquitted for a second time on the charge of on 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 uh, being impeached. He was impeached and acquitted a second time. Mm-hmm. This second impeachment charge uh, had to do with his role in the January sixth insurrection, and politicians could not muster up the political will to say that he had indeed fomented an insurrection in direct violation of his duties as president and was the first president to be impeached twice and the first to be acquitted twice. That's one. Another, Derek Chauvin, George Floyd's murderer, who we watched in Mm -hmm. horrified awe with his knee on the neck of George Floyd for nine minutes and 26 seconds, I think it came out to be. And we were waiting to see what would happen because so often these police officers who are guilty of egregious acts of abuse and anti-black racism get off scot-free or with a slap on a wrist. Mm -hmm. That's right. In this case, Chauvin was convicted and there was this, this national moment, you know, it was this national moment, sort of a deep breath, but still, you know, as if there's something toxic in the air, you didn't want to breathe too deeply. And I'll get to that in a second. Another verdict, um, the lynchers of Ahmad Arbery were found mm-hmm. guilty. Mm-hmm. Yes, That was another case where we sort of waited with bated breath. Are these vigilantes who chased down this black man jogging in, quote unquote, their neighborhood, are they going to get away with it? Are they going to be able to use this sort of so-called self-defense or whatever uh, uh, excuse? And no, they weren't able to. They were convicted. And that was a huge one. But we're not done. We're not done. So Muhammad Aziz and the late Khalil Islam, Mm -hmm. two black men from the Nation of Islam, were exonerated of assassinating Malcolm X back in 1965. That's correct. That's right. Decades in prison. And finally, due to to, um, recently re-released evidence that was not available in the trial or hidden, they were exonerated. Too late for Khalil Islam. And even though Aziz is still living, far, far, far too late uh, to, to recognize his innocence. And then one more, and this one just came in uh, December 23rd to close yes. out the year. Correct. Kim Potter, who killed a black man, Dante Wright, she claimed that she was reaching for a taser, was actually her gun, shot him in the chest and killed him. Uh, just 10 miles from where George Floyd was killed, she was found guilty of manslaughter and faces up to seven years in pr- prison. So I say all of this because not that the legal system has done its job in every case, but because it matters. It indicates to people the willingness of the powers that be, of the established channels meaning the courts, to actually deliver for Black people. It also brought up this very important distinction between accountability and justice. 
accountability Correct. and justice. Correct. So, so when we get these convictions, we often say justice has been done. Activists often maintain the distinction that justice would be Ahmad Arbery still alive. Justice would be Derek Chauvin still breathing. Justice would be Dante Wright still alive and Aziz and Islam uh, not being convicted and incarcerated. That would be justice. But when these verdicts come down and people are found guilty, that is a form of accountability. It doesn't make right what went wrong, but it says it was wrong and you need a consequence. So I think the legal system for what it indicates about sort of as a barometer of where our society is, particularly Mm -hmm. when it comes to the matter of black life, that needs to be a cultural artifact for 2021. Man, so he just went there. He just, he just. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I totally understand. I think especially with your criteria of trying to pay attention to the things that really shape us uh, for good and for, for ill. And I think all of us would agree that the legal system is has not fully done its job in the ways that it should. And these handful of positive outcomes pale in comparison uh, to what it should be. But it's important for us to mark the slow, painful, incremental progress that is necessary uh, for us to push toward freedom and experience freedom. So right. I totally yeah. get that. And I think I think it is. I am starting to hear a little bit more than I did before. I didn't expect them to convict, but they did. I didn't expect them to render guilty, but they did. And that has happened at least a couple of times. And that does not compare to the tsunami of of people who are unjustly um, profiled, accused, found guilty, incarcerated, and die even at the hands of law enforcement and the legal system. But I think what it does show us is that there is um, hope for some change to be possible. And I think it's good to be reminded of that. Just to close out this point, um, one of our very close associates and supporters, John, actually is from the same city where Ahmad Arbery was killed and was very involved in uh, getting financial support for the family, in helping bring the legal case against his lynchers. And one of the things he said that, that that stuck out to me was even as people, particularly black people who recognize the justice system fails at least as much as it prevails, not to take away this moment from the families. So hmm. Ahmad Arbery's mother was grateful at the conviction. The family members of these other folks we're grateful at the conviction. No, it didn't bring their loved ones back to life, but imagine what it would have been like if they had been found innocent. And so it, 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 yes. is a, it was a reminder to me that um, even partial victories, they're sweet for someone and they're sweet for those who are most directly impacted. So even in our effort to say it's not enough, we still have further to go, not to steal the joy or the relief from the people who are impacted far more personally than we have been by these events. That's a good start, brother. Let's take a break. We'll be right back with part one of your cultural artifacts for 2021 right here on Pass the Mic.
Hey, Jamar, you know, we have been doing past the mic for about seven years now. That is, I don't know how many episodes, a lot. millions of downloads, I <laughs> yes. mean, so many sessions. And we still love doing this, right? We absolutely do. I am amazed at how much energy we have. I think it gets better, like fine wine over time as yes. we do it. And that's what we tell ourselves. Yes. <laughs> Touch man, and agree. <laughs> I want us to do this for another seven years. And to do this, we are needing the audience's help. Yes. We need your help as listeners to fund this incredible work here that we're doing at Pass the Mic. And they can do that through our Patreon community. Yes. Would you consider becoming a patron of Pass the Mic for just a dollar an episode? One dollar. You can support this work. Go to patreon.com forward slash pass the mic. M-I-C. Patreon.com forward slash pass the mic and fund and fuel this work for the next seven years. The next seven years, the next 10 years. Who knows? The next 50 years if the lord okay. should tarry we are excited about we're gonna be holograms work. yes we will but you can find it at patreon.com forward slash pass the mic thank y'all so much for your help and support thank you Okay, so we are back with Cultural Artifacts. Jamar has just given us his first three. I am on number three myself, and I'm going to make another transition. First, I did a movie, a book, and now we're going to get into a little bit of music, brother. Okay. I okay. am choosing. I know coming. Yeah, you know it's coming at some point in time, but it's been a, a, a strange year for music. I've listened to a lot of music, but not a lot of music has really grabbed me and moved me. But this particular album definitely has, and that album is Red Hands Live by the Red Hands Band. And Red Hands is an Ohio-made band that brings inspiration through their soul and funk-inspired songs. They've worked with a wide variety of artists from Jay-Z, Beyonce, Jessica Reedy, Ty Tribbett, and many more. And they also currently work as a house band on the hit TV show Songland on NBC. And I came across this band because someone had sent out a random tweet about how much they enjoyed this album. I don't even remember who it was. So I clicked on it. I was like, oh, okay, might as well save it, you know, and see what they're talking about. And so I clicked on it. And man, my favorite artist in all of music is Fred Hammond. I don't mm. think that's any surprise mm. for people. I think if you've been following me, you know me well enough, you know how much I love Fred Hammond's music and his style. And Fred Hammond in really the late 90s, mid to late 90s, early 2000s, brought this incredible soul funk feel to gospel. And he took what gospel has always been, and he hung on to the doctrinal depth. He hung on to the old school sensibilities and traditions and put sauce on it. I mean, the bass mm. with everything, the full band feel, the vocal excellence, it really felt like you were getting gospel, but but gospel funk, right? And yet still was very Godward in its focus and in its praise, but it was something that you could groove to. And that shaped my music sensibilities and my gospel music sensibilities. And when I turned on the Red Hands Band, and when I turned on this album, I felt like I was listening to Fred Hammond in the early 2000s. Wow. Wow. I felt like this is, That's I was like, huge. yes, this is what I've been looking for. The the Fred Hammond 2.0, not saying that they're better than Fred Hammond because nobody can be. Okay, you know, that's my favorite artist. But 
the Fred Hammonds 2.0, the new iteration, they have soul and funk and the vibe that they have is so smooth. It's very akin to, and he's actually featured on this album, but PJ Morton, it's very akin to PJ yeah. Morton, but from yeah. a more gospel sense. And, uh, you know, PJ's kind of, you know, just doing his thing. I know he just did a gospel album as well, which was phenomenal, but it's, it's actually more in the strict inspirational gospel lane and they are excellent. They're outstanding. Obviously people in, you know, the mainstream industry take note of that with their connections. Uh, but this is an album that I vibe to. This is a sunset driving home from the office album. This is one of those where you just put it on. <laughs> Yeah, this is this one of those albums. You know what I'm saying? It's a vibe. You got your tea. You got maybe a little blanket. You know what I'm saying? Cover up your feet. Keep your feet warm, and put this thing on. Y'all need to get Tyler Lazy Boy because this is his second reference. He wants some hot chocolate and a blanket, y'all. Hey, look, we'll put it in. Yo, look, I'll give you my cash app. Like for real, it'll go toward that Lazy Boy recline because we need that in the house. Okay, but yeah, that's number three for me. Red Hands Live by the Red Hands Band. Oh, I love it. You always introduce me so, to some new artists. This is what's up. Okay. Um, my final two are going to be somewhat predictable. They're also going to be along the lines of, of politics. But trust me, in part two, I have some more personal ones, some more pop cultural ones, too. But we, we, we just couldn't go, and particularly me as a historian, couldn't go the first Cultural Artifacts episode of 2021 without mentioning... Uh, <sighs> Here he January go. January sixth insurrection. Here, here. I knew it was coming. You knew it after was coming. the. <laughs> you got to. I Yo, knew. Yes, listen. you do. You do. You do. Can you do. I shout to you. If I was in the room, I would be standing up and pacing. This is the clearest sign yet of the fragility of our democracy and of the lack of conviction to strengthen it and defend it. We had folks storming the Capitol on the day they were certifying the presidential election results. If they had even succeeded a little more than they did, which by the way, they breached the Capitol. They broke windows. They overpowered the Capitol police. There was a string of breakdowns before that to where they didn't even have the backup and the reinforcements that they needed to where that assembly even happened in the first place, right? But do you realize how close we came to more bloodshed? Because we ought not forget the fact that people did die in this, including several people by suicide afterwards, because it was so traumatic. Uh, We had Congress people locked in and hiding in their own offices. We had people Mm -hmm. who wanted to kidnap the vice president. Like, this is not a And hang him. And hang hang him. him. This is not a drill. And to this day, we don't have any real political action aside from a committee that's investigating this, which couldn't even uh, 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 get a bipartisan consensus to form. Can we? I mean, it's mind boggling. So, So now we're faced with a situation similar to after the Civil War in the sense of, are we going to hold these treasonous folks accountable, including politicians who participated in it, including law enforcement and military personnel who participated in it? So we are very, very near 
to not having any sort of substantive consequence. I mean, it mm-hmm. shouldn't have happened in the first place. But when mm-hmm. something like this does, well, this is this is pull out all the stops. This is uh, every red flag you can raise. This is time to, to, to make it clear in no uncertain terms that this is about democracy. This isn't about uh, red or blue. This isn't about left or right. This is about protecting the peaceful transition of power in the United States, which has for centuries been held up or idealized itself as the beacon of democracy throughout the throughout the globe. So yes. um, I just, I just, you know, and we won't even consider not even abolishing the filibuster. There are ways to to suspend or change the rules in order to pass something like a federal voting rights act, which we need to counteract all of the laws uh, being passed at the state and local level, which make it harder for people, particularly black and brown and poor people to vote. We won't even consider um, the fact that, and I'm wrapping up here, land the plane, but we got nah, we go off, go off. the fact that 2020 might be our last real free-ish election, right? Because we were never there with multiracial democracy ever. But it was it was at least the hope that we could continue to make progress. Well, what's mm-hmm. happening at the state and local level right now is they are replacing local election officials. They are replacing county clerks and the people who count the votes with their own political operatives so that when it's close, they can just say a recount or cry foul. And all of those things that they tried to do in 2020 but couldn't quite do, they're setting it up to be able to do in 2022 midterms. Cool vibes. Cool vibes. Elections. I'm saying. I'm saying. But, but, but cool but season. It's going to be, there's going to be violence, I think, in, in some way, shape, or form. But it's also going to be a soft coup because what they've done is placed their people in positions using the democratic process. So they put tons of resources behind these itty bitty local elections that nobody really pays attention to. And sometimes the people, uh, it's it's an uncontested office, so all you have to do is declare and you win. They 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 have stacked the deck within the legal parameters so that they can say, oh, we followed the rules, but they know the game they're playing. And and folks who are pro democracy and pro multiracial democracy, we play in checkers and they're playing chess. So I'm sounding the alarm. I'm sounding the alarm. And as a cultural artifact in 2021, that's got to be on the list. You know, it's so striking how we endure so much and don't blink. It's striking how we face so much and shrug our shoulders. You know, even with this new variant, I don't even want, I don't even want to go down all that. But I mean, even even with this new variant, I mean, everybody's like, ah, well, you know, it's like the numbers are outrageous. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's everywhere. We don't think we should do anything differently. You know. It's fascinating, and I think it's a microcosm of a major event, January 6th. I mean, many of us have even forgotten in our in our minds, in the presence, in the front of our minds, that this happened this year. That's right. Still right. this year. Less than a year old as we record. Yeah. Whew. Okay, let me lighten the mood a little bit. So <laughs> normally I try to pick a comic book, 
And I was struggling throughout the year to really find a comic book that I could add. So I add my cultural artifacts list progressively. It's a notes. I have a notes app, um, a file in my, in my notes app where I keep my cultural artifacts, anything that could potentially be one. I try to, if I remember, try to put it in that folder so that I can remember. And I was looking in October, maybe November, and I was like, I don't have a comic book. And then I remembered that one of our listeners, a guy named Paul, shout out to Paul, he actually recommended a book for me to read. And I read the book. I went back. I looked it up. I read the book. And now it's on my cultural artifacts list. You see how much power y'all have? There you y'all go. have power to Audience even influence the list. And the comic is called Bitter Root. It is written by David Walker and Chuck Brown. And it is drawn. And the head of artistry is, is Sanford Green. And Bitter Root is super fun. It is based in 1920s Harlem, and it profiles and centers around a black family that are some of the greatest monster hunters of all time. And they are, I think they're called the Sanjiri or Sanjiri family. I don't know how to pronounce it exactly, but they are a line of people that fight monsters and they also specialize in curing the souls of those who have been infected by what turns people monstrous, which is hate. And so something happens to where I won't get into all the details to where uh, some of the family members are lost. And then there is an internal divide between the family about whether or not they should kill the monsters or cure the monsters. And they cure the monsters through the bitter root. And yeah, (laughs) it's so much fun. Wow. It's everything. You're you're like, oh, snap. I got to check this out. Yes, you do. It is drawn incredibly well. It depicted incredibly well. I also love the little subtle things that they do to challenge stereotypes, which again, feels like it's on the nose, but the way in which they do it is so brilliant. So they have a, a, I forget his name, a really big character, but he has this mastery of the English language. So he uses like SAT words, you know, but he can fight. I mean, he's the heavy of the group, but he can, he's also a brilliant intellectual. And then you have a young woman who is actually being trained in the art of how to extract in, in an herbal way, cures or extract special potions and ointments and she's a tremendous fighter. And so they're trying to keep her in the kitchen and she wants to fight. And then you have a young man who's actually, I think her brother who can't fight, but he's out there trying to fight because that's the male expectation that they have for him. It's so much fun. And it really oh. drives home this point that hatred and bigotry will turn you into a monster. So I think it's actually perfect. And it's really providential that right after January (laughs) 6th, we talk about this. It's so much fun. And you can tell they put in a ton of research into it. And so, yeah, check out the Bitter Root or or Bitter Root. That's the name of the comic. Um, And shout out to Paul for recommending that to me. That was an excellent worthwhile recommendation. And now it's on the list for 2021. Appreciate you, Paul. Now you have, you, you just heard Tyler, you have an open invitation to, to, to make another recommendation. Who knows? It might end up on 
the list. Yes, um, yes. Last one, last one for your five here. Last one. So the last one, again, I'm Captain Obvious. And we alluded to it before, and it's going to be completely predictable to people. But I also feel like if I listened to this Cultural Artifacts episode from 21, and we didn't list it, I'd be like, huh, why didn't we say that? So I'm just going to say it. My fifth and final Cultural Artifact for part one is the COVID-19 vaccine. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> the COVID-19. You got your booster, vaccine. Jay? You got your booster? I got my bo- booster. It's a it's a it's a beautiful poetic story of I I've said this on the podcast before, but when I got my vaccine earlier in 21, I walk into the pharmacy and lo and behold, it is uh Dr. Kaisha who was in my first class of 6th graders. Yes. Yes, that's so teaching. special. So she gave me my first shot, my second shot, and my booster shot. So absolutely all boosted up and everything like that. And I'm thankful that I am because along the lines of why the vaccine is a culture artifact, we had waited with bated breath. You remember when this thing first went down, when we first learned about this pandemic in 2020, they said typically a vaccine takes years to develop. And we yes. had a, a, a two, three, eventually vaccines uh, that were 90 plus percent effective. And we got it within months, within months. And then, of course, late 2020, it rolls out to frontline workers, healthcare workers, the elderly, the immunocompromised. And we're all sort of waiting our turn as we should. There's priorities here. But then I remember just the sort of cultural mood of the moment was like a sigh of relief. We can finally come out of this. We had shut down, y'all. Do you remember how shocking it was Mm -hmm. in March of 2020 to go from life as usual to every restaurant, every uh, barber shop, every grocery store closed? You weren't going to work. We had to manage this new remote environment. And then to have a vaccine come out and say, not necessarily go back to normal, but at least we can go outside. Mm-hmm. At least we can interact with people. And then just like everything else, it became so politicized. People talking about these wild uh, conspiracy theories, these wild uh, cures that were not the vaccine, uh, the you know, just made it into such a stake in the ground not to get something that could save your life and those around you. And then because folks wouldn't take the vaccine, we got this variant, the Delta variant that makes its rounds. And now at the mm-hmm. end of 21, we have this Omarion variant. <laughs> Touch. You know, um, so it was just, and then masks along with that. It, 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 it is this um, back and forth between hope and disappointment. It's resulted in all these foolish cultural and political wars, even ecclesiastical wars with people, with church members in the same congregation or denomination at each other's throats <sighs> about this. And Don't, the way start. it's Don't divided, get me started, bro. Don't get me started. Uh, and, it's, and it's still an effective way to prevent illness or at least minimize illness if you catch the the the, the uh, virus and what it tells t- says to me 
is this total lack among Christians of an understanding of the common good. Total lack even among the general population. Mm -hmm. But the idea that we might need to slightly inconvenience ourselves, even though getting a life-saving vaccine, I don't think of as as an inconvenience. We might have to do something that we wouldn't normally do for ourselves or on our own for the good of others and for the sake of others. And we seem to have lost that entire, at least some of us. And so uh, it's been extremely disappointing in that sense, even as the vaccine held out so much hope for bringing an end to this pandemonium. Yeah, man, I remember in March of 2020, driving home from our midweek Bible study and hearing that the NBA had paused a game. I think it was between the Utah Jazz and the Dallas Mavericks because I believe it was Rudy Gobert, who is a defending uh, defensive player of the year, or two-time defensive player of the year, um, had tested positive for COVID. And they had paused the game and everyone was kind of standing around, looking around, and then they called the game off paused every other game. And then the sports center anchors were just sitting there talking and they were like, what do we do? (laughs) You know, they had no idea. And I remember feeling like, oh, this is going to affect everything. What do we do for Sunday? What do we do for next week? Is church going to have to go on pause? And all these other things that eventually became our normal day-to-day conversations. It's funny how quickly we've adjusted, but that's right. That's right. You just, you mentioned that with the uh, January 6th mm-hmm. and I think the pandemic uh, is, is, is the same thing and, and has something to do with that. We've become so desensitized because we experience all these, what I think we could call cultural traumas. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so a defense mechanism almost reflexively is to sort of numb ourselves to it. And we ought to remind ourselves of the actual situation that we're in. Yeah. And most frustratingly, that it could have been prevented. It can still be minimized, uh, but for some foolishness out there. Yeah. Get the vax, wear your mask, wear your mask, um, as someone has <laughs> hilariously said. <laughs> the last one for top five, or, or for the first five, I should say part one of cultural artifacts in 2021, I'm going to transition to a person. So I've done movie, a book, an album, a comic, and now a person. And this is the 2021 Scripps National Spelling Bee winner, Zaila Avant-Garde. Wow. And look, man. <laughs> I, I remember. Okay. I picked Zaila because I don't think there's anyone this year or in recent memory that I've seen do what they do better than she does what she does. And I didn't realize and understand how gifted she was until I did some research right after she won the spelling bee. And so this is taken from an ESPN article and it says, um, actually one, I think it's one of her Coaches, yes. Okay, so one of her coaches, uh, Cole Schaefer-Ray, one of her coaches says this, usually to be as good as Zaila, you have to be well-connected in the spelling community. You have to have been doing it for many years. 
it was like a mystery. Like, is this person even real? Because she had only started a few years ago after her father had watched the be on TV and realized that his daughter's affinity for doing complicated math in her head could translate well into spelling. <laughs> and then Schaefer, this is, this is a quote here. Schaefer Ray quickly realized his pupil had extraordinary gifts. He says, she really just had a much different approach than any speller I've ever seen. She basically knew the definition of every word that we did, like pretty mm. much verbatim. She knew mm. not just the word, but the story behind the word. Y'all not hearing me. The story <laughs> behind the word, why every letter had to be that letter and couldn't be anything else. And so then he goes on to say, most spellers look at words simply as a sequence of letters to memorize. Zaila looked at each word as a story. Not only did she know each word's spelling, but she also knew its entire backstory with its historical con what its historical context was, what roots it came from, and the precise uh, orthographical, <laughs> I think that's what it is, orthographical it logic right. of why every letter of every word had to be exactly what it was. Zaila is inspiring. And listen, I could stop there, but I'm not going to. Because here's what a lot of people don't know. She's also a basketball prodigy. She literally holds Guinness World Record titles <laughs> in the sport of basketball. She holds the title for most balls juggled in one minute with four basketballs. She holds most dribbles in 30 seconds with four basketballs. Most basketballs dribbled by one person simultaneously. And that's what? not it. She's also a silver medalist in international juggling. Whoa. And she's an elite unicyclist and she can cycle and juggle at the same time. She's 14. (laughs) Come on, man. Oh my gosh. Come on, man. And she decided she was going to break these records a couple of years before she did it or a year before she did it. She just wanted to try to break a Guinness world record in her 13th birthday. She wanted to enter into her teenage years, breaking a world record. That's just what she wanted to do. This girl is an inspiration. Nobody does what they world. do better than she does what she does. I'm convinced. I'm convinced Physical that she's at the pinnacle prodigy. of every yes of everything that she does. I'm convinced she can master it and she can take it to levels that we haven't even seen before. And it was so funny hearing, I think it was a runner up in the Scripps National Spelling Bee who lost to her, basically say, yeah, she's. She's always been better than me. <laughs> it was just kind of like, like oh, I yeah, knew this was going to happen. <laughs> like, yo, I saw this coming a mile place. away, fam. Like, yo, <laughs> second place ain't bad. Zaila Avant-Garde is unbelievable. And she was so inspiring. And it wasn't so much the brilliance, because obviously we can look at it and we can like fetishize accomplishments, but it was the natural way in which she didn't apologize for who she is. She didn't apologize for what she could do, and she didn't see any limits. There was no cap for her. There were no limitations, no boundaries, nothing preventing her from being all that she wanted to be. And it was such an inspiration for me and continues to be an inspiration for me as I think about my much smaller, less impressive goals uh, to accomplish. Zaila, so she's number five for me. She show. had to be. Oh, yeah. No, we actually got to get her on the show. That's a great idea, actually. Okay. If you got a podcast, if you got a podcast, close yours to that. Delete that from your memory. Yeah. You're going to get her on the podcast. That's man. that's the top five, man. Or, or the, excuse me. The first five. The first five 
of our cultural artifacts. Jamar, give them your first five again. Okay, just to recap, I said Black Women, the documentary A Man Named Scott, the U.S. legal system, the January 6th insurrection, and the COVID-19 vaccine. And for me, it is the movie Judas and the Black Messiah, the book by Dr. James Cone said I wasn't going to tell nobody, the album Red Hands Live by the Red Hands Band, the comic Bitter Root, and the person's Aila Avant-Garde. Listen, that's a great 10, but we got 10 more. We got got 10 more. more. And I got some heaters. The second second half of the list might be my favorite second half of any list we've ever done. So y'all got to stay tuned for the next Pass the Mic and you'll get Cultural Artifacts Part 2.